Kate Bowler is a professor whose expertise is in the history of Christianity. And she recently wrote a book called Blessed, which is all about the health and wealth gospel. This is also called the prosperity gospel. And the idea of the prosperity gospel is simple. If you have faith and trust in God, God will give you health and wealth, freedom from illness and poverty. This gospel takes handpicked passages from the Bible, which I'm going to read to you. Things like, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you. With the same measure you measure, it will be measured back to you. You do not have because you do not ask. The preachers of this gospel read these verses and conclude that God wants us to be prosperous and only requires that we trust in him. Now, this gospel has an a philosophy about sick and poor people. If God wants you to be prosperous and you're not, then it's your fault. If you don't trust God enough, if you don't love Jesus enough, then you are poor or unhealthy or dying because of some moral failing on your part, something in your past or something in your present. If God's faithful are the rich and the happy and the healthy, then the unbelievers are poor and sad and sick because of their unbelief. Now, there is low-hanging fruit here if you want to dismiss the prosperity gospel. You can point out the hypocrisy or the extravagance. It's so easy to dismiss these preachers when you see their private jets. It's easy to wave your hand at them when you see them take advantage of the poor. But this morning, I want to go a little bit deeper, and I want to turn the question back to us. Do you and I believe in the prosperity gospel? At age 35, Kate Bowler, the expert on the prosperity gospel, was doing very well. She was teaching at Duke Divinity School. She was married to her high school sweetheart, and she had a newborn son. Everything seemed to be going well in her life, and then she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And she realized that she had been writing about the prosperity gospel as if she didn't believe it. But when this tragedy struck, she realized deep down in her heart of hearts, she did believe it. She thought she knew better. She thought she would never fall for those lies. But really deep down, she thought if she worked hard enough, she wouldn't suffer. So think back for a second to the times in your life when you have suffered most. Did you assume something like that couldn't happen to you? I'm not asking if you were sad or in pain. I'm asking, did you think, what did I do wrong to deserve this? Even if you didn't want to say it out loud, did you wonder, but God, why is this happening to me? I'm not a bad person. Because if you did, then there might be some part of your mind or some part of your heart that has bought into this idea that pain and suffering always have a causal connection to sin, that all suffering in life is someone's fault. So the question is, if Kate Bowler, who literally wrote the book on the prosperity gospel, had no idea she believed it, what do you believe? What do I believe? Because maybe more of us believe in the prosperity gospel than we realize. Maybe more of us believe that suffering has some sort of sin as its cause. Which means 
that not much has changed in 2,000 years for the disciples of Christ. Because in the first two verses of the ninth chapter of John's gospel, we read that Jesus was walking along. He sees a man blind from birth, and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? They see suffering, they see pain, and they ask, well, who sinned? Who did something wrong? Whose moral failing is responsible for this pain? Now, if you're not a Christian, you may not care about Christ's response, but whoever you are, I want you to know who Christ really is by what he says, because you can decide to reject Christ. That's your decision. You can think he's a figment of my imagination, but if you're going to reject Christ, I really think you should at least reject who he really was, because this is his immediate response to his disciples' question. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And then Christ does something really strange. He spits on the ground, he makes some mud with the saliva and dirt, and puts that mud on the blind man's eyes. And he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The blind man goes, he washes, and he comes back able to see. Now, you would think that the rest of this passage would be about the miracle. How did this work? How did this happen? Maybe the miracle would be cause for celebration and the whole town would be in uproar in, in a positive way that they would be excited about what's going on, but it actually starts a debate, which is why we can't have nice things, because they start to interrogate the blind man. They ask him, who are you? They ask him his identity. Who are you really? And remember, these are people with functioning eyes who know what this man looks like, who've seen him before, but somehow deny what is in front of their faces. And he keeps telling them, he keeps insisting, it's me, it's really me. I'm the beggar. I'm the blind beggar that you know about and that you've seen before. And, and then they demand to know how he was healed. And he calmly reassures them that it was this man named Jesus. And then they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, you know, I don't know, because until recently, I was blind. I can't really give you a description of the scene. I can't tell you his height or weight, because once again, lest you forget, I used to be blind. To make matters worse, the Pharisees get involved in this little debate and interrogation, and they do not help one bit. Instead of congratulating the blind man, I don't know, worshiping God, they start up their own controversy about the healing. They start to wonder where this healer is from. Is he from God or, or not? And they conclude, based on their extensive knowledge of the situation, that this healer couldn't be from God because the healing happened on Sabbath, and you're not supposed to do any miracles on Sabbath because miracles are actually work, and on the Sabbath you can't work, so case closed. Then they try to figure out the blind man's story. Well, he can see, that's obvious from what we can tell, but he, but he couldn't have been blind because the healer performed the miracle on the Sabbath, which means the healer isn't from God, which means he's not really a healer, so he never healed the guy in the first place, and we can prove it if we just ask the parents of the not blind man. So they bring the parents in, and they ask, is this your son? And the mom and dad say, yes, he's our son. And he has been blind from birth. 
And you would think that the woman who gave birth to this blind son might be considered an authority on the subject of her son's ability to see, but that doesn't fit their convoluted narrative, so the Pharisees come up with a new plan. The blind man must say that Jesus is a sinner. They demand that he says this. And now the, the beggar is just annoyed at this point. In verse 25, he says, I don't know whether he is a sinner. The one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And so they said to him, what exactly did he do to heal you? I mean, describe it to us in detail. Give us the play-by-play. Just tell us the story one more time. And the beggar answers them, I have told you a thousand times. Why do you want to hear it again? Maybe you need some healing too because you're deaf. I've said it over and over again. I mean, do you want to become his disciples? You just keep insisting that I tell you the story over and over again. And they can't hear it. I recently started the show Chernobyl, which is about the Russian power plant that exploded in 1986. It's considered one of the worst nuclear disasters in history, but it was a total accident. But once the accident happened, it took days for them to make a decision to evacuate the people surrounding the area. Now, I think what's so amazing about the show is how they depict human nature. The story shows that we are capable of denying what is in front of our faces. The scientists believed that the bad news could not be true. So no matter what they saw, no matter what they heard, no matter the bad reports or people dying in front of their eyes, everyone was acting like nothing was wrong. Left and right, scientists are getting sick from radiation poisoning and they just keep telling themselves it cannot be true, so it isn't true. That's where the Pharisees are with the blind man. They see this beggar whose parents confirm that he is their son, that he's been blind from birth, and now he can see, but it simply cannot be true. This isn't an honest, rational search for the objective truth. This is an evasion of the truth. And they end up insulting the beggar and yelling in his face, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? You've probably noticed that this passage is all about the relationship between sin and suffering. The disciples see this suffering man and think either he or his parents sinned. So we'll just ask Jesus to tell us which is which. And you may be a better person than the rest of us, but I bet most of us have actually made this assumption before. We've seen someone else's pain, we've seen the difficulty they face in life, and we think they could have been prepared. They could have seen it coming. They could have chosen otherwise. And if I had been in that situation, it wouldn't have happened to me. But what does Jesus say? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. In other words, Christ is teaching us today, 2,000 years later, that not all suffering comes from sin. And this isn't the only time that Jesus teaches us this truth. In chapter 13 of Luke's gospel, some of Christ's followers strike up this conversation with Jesus. They heard the news that Pilate, the Roman official put in charge of the land, had killed some Galileans from the north, northern part of Israel, and they bring up that news event to Jesus. And it's not hard to imagine their tone when they ask him, hey, Jesus, did you hear about those Galileans who got themselves killed by Pilate? You can, you can hear it in their tone, and Jesus won't have any of it. He, so he asks them this question. He says, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than 
all other Galileans? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or what about those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? The answer, Jesus says, is no. He says, unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. In other words, bad things happen. Men and women and children face disaster and tragedy all over the world, and it's not always because they are worse people. The prosperity gospel is discredited from the mouth and teachings of Jesus. The poor and the sick are not automatically less faithful, less moral, or less holy. And Christ didn't just teach against the prosperity gospel with his words. His life disproves it. Christ trusts his heavenly father more than any of us do or ever will. And he was born to a poor carpenter. He was a transient preacher without permanent residence. And he was executed on false and trumped up charges of sedition. He was crucified despite the fact that Pilate admitted his innocence over and over and over again. Jesus was not made healthy or wealthy by God. He died too young at 33 years old, broke, ashamed, and abandoned by his closest friends. If the prosperity gospel is true, then Jesus is a sinner who doesn't trust God enough. So let's say it again, exactly what Christ taught. Not all suffering is caused by sin. And yet, at the same time, in my study of John's gospel, I came across a passage that I hadn't seen before. A few sermons back, I was preaching on Christ's healing of the invalid man. And this story has a lot of parables of parallels, excuse me, to the healing of the man born blind. So both healings take place on the Sabbath. Both healings mention some form of body of water, and both men are sick for a very long time. The invalid is paralyzed for 38 years. And in both scenes, Jesus disappears and then returns later to the scene. But here's something that Jesus says all the way back in chapter 5 that I didn't mention then that I need to bring up now. Jesus says to the invalid man, See that you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Let me say that again. Jesus says, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. This saying is different than what he says in chapter 9 with the blind man. Now, it would only be speculation if we tried to figure out what the invalid's sin was. We don't know what he did, but Jesus is saying there is a connection between sin and suffering. He warns this man against sin so that nothing worse than paralysis happens. In other words, Jesus is filling in the rest of the picture. In chapter 9, he teaches that not all suffering comes from sin, but in chapter 5, he says all sin leads to suffering. The suffering may not be physical, but all sins do damage. Sins hurt. Say they hurt you, they hurt those around you, they betray trust, ruin relationships, reinforce bad habits, bring guilt and shame, and instill fear and selfishness. In chapter 8, Jesus summarizes it perfectly. He says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sin is never harmless, even if we don't see or feel its effects immediately. Even small sins just chip away piece by piece at our hearts and minds and souls. This week has been crazy, to say the least. The pandemic continues in our country, around the world, and in Austin, as we're still at stage four in terms of risk level. 
we were hit by a polar vortex. That's the actual term. And the, the vortex has caused statewide rolling blackouts, loss of heat and water and food. And to add on top of that, my wife got COVID last week. So she had to quarantine in our bedroom for 10 days. Oh, and by the way, if you didn't know, she is nine months pregnant, which means our baby could come any day now, including during the polar vortex. So it's been pretty relaxed in our house, no tears or fears for us. Um, but when I think about this past week and this past year, I don't see any reason to believe that the suffering we faced due to a virus or a vortex are traced back to some sin. I think about Christ's question in Luke chapter 13. Do you think people who suffer tragedies and disasters are worse sinners than anyone else? But here's the hard part of Christ's teaching. Even in the midst of great suffering, we don't take a break from sin. We don't magically become innocent people who love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't instantly become fully Christ-like, loving our neighbors as ourselves. We still struggle with our vices, and we're still petty and ungrateful, and leaders can still be corrupt, and selfishness can drive our decisions. Suffering does not inoculate us against the dangerous power of sin. Now, we want a clear understanding of suffering. We either want to blame other people who suffer and assume that they sinned, that they got themselves into that mess and they could choose to get themselves out of it, or we assume that when suffering happens to us or our people, that we're innocent angels undergoing tragedy. Surely we're just victims, and victims don't ever hurt other people. But Christ teaches us to avoid both of these errors by teaching the truth that not all suffering comes from sin, but all sin leads to suffering. That's why we need wisdom and discernment. This passage shows that the prosperity gospel is false. And even if we think that we're enlightened and we know better, many of us in our heart of hearts believe the prosperity gospel. We're surprised and shocked when suffering happens to us. But the gospel of Christ is good news. The gospel is that Christ, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes. The gospel is that Christ, though he never sinned, suffered for us. The sinless one, the perfect one, suffered for sinners like you and me. And he suffered not just to have solidarity with us, but to save us, to rescue us out of our situation. He saves us from slavery to sin in this life, and he saves us from suffering in the life to come. The gospel of Christ is true. The prosperity gospel is false. Jesus told his disciples, neither this man nor his parents have sinned. But there's the rest of the verse that we need to hear too. He says that the man was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. No matter what the situation is, God can work in the midst of great suffering to reveal his ultimate plan, his greater goods that he wishes to achieve. So regardless of what happens to us, whether a virus or a vortex, my prayer is that God's works might be revealed in us.